Hello, and welcome to Let There Be Noose, a podcast devoted to hosting interdisciplinary dialogue between psychologists, philosophers, and theologians. I hope you enjoy the content of today's episode, and thanks for dropping by. Welcome to Let There Be News. I'm Court Verhagen, and I'm coming to you from Taylor University in the cornfields of Upland, Indiana. This is our first show, and today I will be having a conversation with Todd and Liz Hall, who are both professors of psychology at the Rosemead School of Psychology at Biola University. Uh, today, Todd, Liz, and I will have a conversation about a lot of things but especially about the nature of interdisciplinary engagement at the intersection of psychology, philosophy, and theology. We'll also chat about Todd and Liz's recent book, Relational Spirituality, and there's a lot of good stuff going on there. So I hope you enjoy the show, and feel free to leave a comment if you'd like to do so. Welcome to Non-Competitive Conversations, a podcast exploring the intersection of theology and psychology. I'm your host, Court Verhagen, and today my guests are Liz and Todd Hall. Liz and Todd are both professors of psychology at Rosemead School of Psychology at Biola University. Liz's research interests include women and work, mothering, sexism, embodiment, and meaning-making in suffering and she's published over 100 chapters and articles related to these and other topics. Todd's research focuses on relational approaches to spirituality, virtue, and leadership. He has also developed several widely used spiritual assessments and has co-developed the Flourish Assessment. Last year, their book, Relational Spirituality, was published by IVP Academic, and we'll be talking a bit about that today. Liz and Todd, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Uh, great to have you guys. Uh, it, it's wonderful to be here in person with you on Biola's campus. And just just want to start out with a more general question and just wondering what, what you guys are working on right now. And maybe uh, if, if you don't want to answer that question, you could talk about what questions or concerns currently motivate your research. So I've been spending the last few years on the topic of uh, suffering, and uh, these last three years I'm just finishing up a grant now funded by John Templeton Foundation on Christian meaning-making, suffering, and flourishing life. And so I've been uh, involved in uh, some really interesting uh, interdisciplinary uh, conversations with a couple theologians and a philosopher and some other social scientists where we've tried to figure out the different ways in which Christians who face tough times do draw on their faith, uh, what they actually do, and then from kind of a theological perspective, what resources are available to them and how we might uh, incorporate some of that work into the psychology of religion to understand how uh, we might uh, help people, uh, Christians specifically, who are suffering to be able to engage more deeply with their faith uh, in the midst of the difficult things they're facing. Mm. And I am working on uh, a 
project focusing on the role of attachment in leadership development. So trying to uh, extend some of the ideas in the Relational Spirituality book to the leadership uh, realm. And um, also, you mentioned the flourish uh, measured, so doing some work focused on how do we measure flourishing of employees and look at employee well-being, which is a really uh, important uh, topic now post-COVID. A lot of employees uh, are uh, experiencing a, a lot of stress and increase in mental health problems, so that's a, a growing conversation, so I'm doing some work in that area. And um, work with students on a number of dissertations. One, one project in there is spirituality that um, relates to the book as well as we're doing an interview study with my student, uh, dissertation student Chelsea Kruger, an interview project focused on the spirituality of emerging adults, but later emerging adults. So there's you know, a fair amount of research on sort of the early part of emerging adulthood, you know, college age range, 18 to 22. There's not a whole lot when you get past that looking at that age range. So we're looking at people who are in that sort of 24 to 29 age range, which, which I think is really important and it's been really interesting, you know, when folks get out of college and they have to, you know, find a community, what does their spirituality look like? So that's a project where uh, my student Chelsea's working on and we're hoping to uh, do a book on that. Excellent. And a lot of what you guys do is, is integration work, um, sort of at the intersection of theology and psychology, which is what this podcast is all about exploring. And you work here at Biola, um, and uh, it's a Christian university, has a great uh, theology faculty. And so you've probably, uh, I know for a fact, because we talked beforehand, uh, that you've had a lot of interdisciplinary engagement you know, Rosemead here houses resident theologians. Um, I'm curious, with respect to that interdisciplinary engagement, what what's the hardest thing about engaging across disciplines? Yeah, as you mentioned, I've I've done quite a bit of uh, interdisciplinary work, and so it took me a while. It took me a few years to figure out what was going on, but I think I understand what's going on now. And I think what it boils down to is that uh, when we are working into our graduate degrees, we are being socialized into accepting a number of different uh, assumptions and guiding questions of the disciplines and even kind of just disciplinary conventions about how you're supposed to go about doing things. And then we operate uh, since, since a lot of times those are not taught to us explicitly, it's more implicit, I think we just kind of operate out of the assumption that this is the way that you pursue knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then we bump into somebody else's discipline where they've been socialized into a whole different way of mm -hmm. doing that. And uh, unless there's some awareness of where those things are coming from, there can just be just some points of frustration or tension or uh, yeah. speaking past each other that uh, can be very challenging. Yeah. So, I mean, I can go into as much or as little detail as you want, but I could give all kinds of examples oh, of how this, how this shows up. I, I, have, I have no doubt. I've, I've experienced that myself on several occasions. Um, and that's a really helpful way to think about it. Yeah, I was just building on what Liz said, I think, uh, first of all, yeah, we really enjoy being in this environment here at Biola. We do have some great um, colleagues in theology so shout out to all you theologians here we love you all and yeah there are, there are some 
tensions and just difficulties built into coming from different disciplines, as Liz was saying, one way to describe that is it's, it's almost like a different language, you know? So both of us actually co-teach with a theologian in the room the whole time, which has been a wonderful experience for me. And, but it is partly sort of learning another language. There are different categories and ways of thinking about things, even though we're, we're thinking about similar kinds of issues and topics but there's different frameworks. And so um, just yeah, learning to kind of translate and you know, speak the other language a little bit takes some time and it's been really helpful. One kind, I'll just give one kind of funny example yeah. is I had been co-teaching for years until I suddenly realized that both of us were using the word normative and we meant different things by it. <laughs> yeah. So in theology and philosophy, normative means the way that things should be and in psychology oh. it means the way that things are on average. Oh, yeah. And so just some funny conversations That's... until we figured out that we're not, we're using the same words and we yeah. literally don't mean the same thing by them. That's amazing. I mean, it's probably quite a, it's probably really great for your students to actually get to see you guys work these things out in a classroom. When, I, uh, when I first sit down and talk to my theologian partner, maybe somebody who's coming on for the first time, I, 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 try to encourage them that if they disagree with me on something to please say it right in front of the students because sometimes they're so polite that they want to just bring it up with me afterwards and I'm like no this is what integration is about yeah if we want students to see us wrestling with the things that maybe rub us wrong or that we don't understand because that's part of the process of integration yeah and in like we were talking about earlier before we started doing this podcast it embodies the fact that there's not one smooth sort of shiny way of doing it that it's that it is hard work and um that it is is a dialogue that requires back and forth and and there are some jagged edges right involved definitely yeah and i think you know you mentioned our students seeing this i think one of the really helpful things for our graduate students when i co-teach um and class that's based on integration is them seeing the different perspectives that we have and I think also the the respect that we have for each other and our different views and, and ways of looking at things so I mean I feel that from my colleagues and I have tremendous respect for them and their depth of knowledge in, in theology and the perspective that brings so they'll see us ask questions sometimes disagree but but also ask questions like you know what do you think about this and how would how would uh, how would you think about this from a theological perspective and so I think that's really beneficial for the students and just part of the dialogue, like you said. That, yeah, there's not a, a one way of doing integration. It really is a, a process. Yeah. Yeah. And my next question was going to be, what is the most rewarding thing? Um, and we that is certainly one of the rewarding things. Is there anything you want to add uh, on that front? What's the most rewarding thing about? The, just the... the the different perspective opens up avenues that you never would have thought of before. Mm. Um, so what I've particularly appreciated in, in theological engagement is uh, just the depth and the complexity it brings to topics that as a psychologist I might look at it and think about it in a very superficial way, but when I am engaging with my theological colleague and listening to the questions, they bring up, I have to rethink some mm. of the categories. Mm -hmm. So we have blind spots, and mm. it's uh, it's often the blind spots that get illuminated when we're talking to people coming from a very different perspective. Mm. Yeah, and, and to build on that, there are particular gaps in psychology that theology can can really build on, and, and in particular, you know, sort of providing a moral 
framework for how we should live. And so I, I really appreciate, um, yeah, just that perspective from from my theological uh, colleagues that they that they bring. It does it does really open up um, avenues and different ways of thinking. And you know, as Liz was talking, I was thinking the the phrase um, that you know, knowledge clarifies the scope of your ignorance. I'm not sure who to attribute that quote to, but uh, it sounds like something Socrates almost said. Yeah, yeah, it could be right. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> so you know, as you as I get older and hopefully a little bit wiser, I think that is, there's, there's more appreciation for different perspectives. And I think I have a greater appreciation that, you know, psychology does as a field doesn't have a corner on the truth on everything. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there's, you know, you know, really is the idea of all truth is God's truth, right? That there's, there's multiple different disciplinary ways of getting at it. And, and it's very helpful. I think earlier in my career, when I was younger, I think there, you know, because we get socialized in this discipline you kind of there's a little bit of an implicit attitude of like no we we kind of have a corner on the truth here and yeah um that that kind of dissipates with time yeah yeah i mean it it sounds like you know when you're, when you're thinking about how interacting with these scholars from other disciplines has shaped you constructively you know a big part of it is epistemic humility mm -hmm. epistemic uh expansion of mm -hmm. horizons mm -hmm. but if you were to you know sort of talk back and say, hey, uh, this this is something that I wish that theologians took into account, an insight from my field or insights, um, however many you want, that I wish they took into account when they did their work. Uh, what, what would those be? What, what, what? Can I say two things? Yeah, oh, okay. so, three things if you uh, So one ongoing joke that I have with my uh, friend with whom I co-teach co many classes is that a lot of times it seems like, uh, especially the more philosophically oriented, you know, uh, theologians and philosophers, they can build up this whole idea in their mind and then it's kind of like, but how does that fit reality? <laughs> it might be internally coherent, but does it work in the real world? And so it's kind of a big joke between us, right? right that we keep yes. bringing up. So that would be one thing. Mm -hmm. um, so empirical, the, the empirical part of our discipline, I think, is really helpful. Mm -hmm. It helps us to test out our ideas against the way that things actually are. Uh, so the second insight would be this. Um, I think that getting the ideas right is very important. I, I don't by any means want to denigrate that, but that's not enough to change people. And so I think mm -hmm. that sometimes the valuing of getting the ideas right uh, tricks people into thinking that that's all that you need to do. Mm -hmm. And if you're in the business of helping to influence people's lives, that's just not enough. Mm -hmm. Just knowing the right answer isn't going to produce the kind of change that, that you need. Yeah. And so that's where psychology can be a really helpful partner because we study how people change. Mm -hmm. That's great. <clears throat> As usual, this stole my answer, so um, I should have went first. But like yeah, are married or something. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, similar thought I had was um, the idea that we talk about in the book of implicit relational knowledge, and this idea that there's two fundamentally distinct ways of knowing. And um, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book is, at least in certain evangelical traditions, right? There's a heavy emphasis on explicit or conceptual knowledge, and that's wonderful. It is important, just like Liz said. And we talk about that in the book, um, but I don't think that is what fundamentally changes people. And so understanding that this gut level implicit way of knowing from early relationships in particular, attachment relationships, 
shapes us deeply, I think is really important for uh, leaders in the church, theologians, philosophers, anyone involved in trying to help um, people grow in the body of Christ. Mm. That's great. Uh, one question I often have uh, when when trying to navigate, as a, as a theologian and a philosopher, trying to navigate this sort of intersection of disciplines is uh, with respect to a lot of the literature that's out there right now on positive psychology. And as, as someone who works in theological realms, uh, I think about sin probably more than most people. And uh, I'm also probably just a bit of a pessimist in general. But I have to wonder about negative, I mean, this probably doesn't exist, but negative psychology, or how does sin awareness um, fit in the landscape of contemporary psychology, mm -hmm. or does it? Mm -hmm. Well, um, so we, we talked about this earlier before we started the podcast, that positive psychology has evolved quite a bit, you know, in the last 20 years, and we're already to a point where the early sort of versions of it are being critiqued and we're talking about positive psychology or psychologies 2.0. And one of the critiques is the lack of dealing with negative emotions. And, you know, part of what we were talking about earlier is, especially in clinical psychology, that's a very important part of the growth process is dealing with emotional pain and negative emotions. And that is part of the growth process. You, you have to, you know, clients, all of us, we have to be able to get to painful emotions and process them. And those core emotions have information built in and they have action tendencies built in and motivation built in. And so when we process those, we go through an arc that leads to good outcomes and, and helps us to grow. And so we have to pay attention to those. Um, and, you know, I think this was there all along. It's, it's a deeper view of positive psychology focusing on more of a eudaimonic, you know, view that uh, of flourishing, right? That it's not just about pleasure, right? And feeling good. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a whole strand in therapy focused on sort of depth relational therapies that also focus on that. So I think that's one area where it, it is addressed that we have to deal with, you know, these negative emotions and, and pain. Um, in terms of Sin awareness, secular psychology really doesn't have categories for that, right? So I think that's where the integration enterprise of bringing a Christian view um, to the table, we have to, we have to integrate that. There are some resources there and there's some kind of parallel concepts about being aware of your limitations and growing in self-awareness. And like we talked about earlier, the more you develop a secure base, which comes from attachment theory, experiences of, of being loved and accepted the more able you are to accept your limitations, be aware of emotional pain, and I think also sin. Mm -hmm. It's hard to make any kind of generalizations about psychology because it's such a huge field, but uh, I mean, if we want to speak in very general terms, uh, psychology has been so influenced by kind of the humanistic movements of uh, you know, the end of the last century that uh, there is actually very kind of little work being done in either positive or, as you call it, negative psychology, uh, in terms of like things that we might bring to the table, negative things, negative actions, tendencies, uh, whether we call it sin or not, there just is not that much uh, work being done on that, uh, unless you consider some forms of psychopathology as things that we, uh, you know, that might be categorized uh, as sinful. 
I think ironically, positive psychology might have a better chance of unearthing some of those things. Because since at the very beginnings of positive psychology, the study of human strengths, or as we might call them in the Christian tradition, virtues, mm -hmm. which, you know, yeah. overlapping categories, mm -hmm. uh, bring with them a recognition that there are corresponding vices. Mm. Right. And so there might actually be a better pathway into studying Absolutely. some sinfulness in the world through uh, positive psychology than traditional <laughs> yeah. psychology. Yeah, and just to build on that, I mean, one of one of the critiques of positive psychology is um, this idea that there, how we define flourishing in the early days was very subjective. It's up to the you know each individual to sort of define what flourishing means to them, and it, you know, and so there's discussion now, and Liz has done some of this work, focused on, you know, we we need to have a deeper understanding of what we mean by flourishing, and that this can be informed by different theological traditions as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, I think it's really interesting what you said about virtues and vices, Liz. I, I teach a class where I have my students read sections from a book by Rebecca Conondike de Young called Glittering Vices. And I found that it's a book about the seven deadly sins and these vices, but I found that students get a, a better grasp of the corresponding virtue in relation to those vices, um, or, or a more full-fledged understanding of it by interacting with what those vices are. And um, so I, I think that's really important. Transitioning a little bit from some of these more general questions, I do want to talk to you guys about um, the book that you uh, wrote together, um, or as it says on the cover, uh, Todd Hall with Elizabeth Hall. Um, and you say more about that in the writing process in the acknowledgments. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it for anybody. It's a fantastic book and one that is really theologically rich. I think philosophically attuned, and also uh, makes the the relevant psychological theories very accessible. Uh, and, and I don't want to give away too much about it, but I just have a few questions. Um, kind of just would love to hear you guys open up. And, and maybe say a bit more about or riff on some themes that are in the book. And so at, at the outset of the book, you're careful to clarify that you don't believe that the person is reducible to their neurobiology. But a, a significant focus of the book is on how psychological processes, like attachment filters, which feature prominently, are involved in the sanctification process. It struck me, though, that, that there certainly are some Christians um, who, who might be concerned that social scientific explanation here is edging out the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, you do a nice job in the book on, on pushing back on that, and I think showing why that's not the case. But I was wondering if you could just unpack for me a bit more how you understand the relationship and between psychological explanation and theological explanation. Sure, yeah. So I have a couple. I'm sure you have thoughts, Liz, as well. Um, probably a number of different directions we can go here, but one thought I think that might help with this is this idea that there's sometimes in the church this assumption that there's a kind of a spiritual part of the person that relates to God and a separate sort of psychological part that, you know, deals with people and, you know, human relationships. And I think what we're arguing in the book is, you know, this integrated view that 
we bring all of our humanity and psychological processes to our relationship with God and our spirituality. It's all, it's all one and the same. It's all integrated. And so psychology in that respect actually helps us understand the work of the Holy Spirit, for example, right? How we experience the work of the Holy Spirit, how we respond to it because it involves our emotions, our intuitions, how we take action on, on you know, our perceptions of those things. So it's, it's not, you know, kind of a separate thing um, in that respect. So we're, we're not, we, as we would see it, we're not edging out the work of the Holy Spirit. We're very open to, it's a real relationship. God is a real person. We have a relationship, but we bring our psychology to that relationship. And so psychological theories help us to understand that relationship better. And of course, a big theme, as you mentioned, attachment filters helps us understand how we're shaped by early relationships and how that plays out in our relationship with God. And just to you know, add on to what Todd is saying, if God created us to relate to God and to others, then God created our psychology. Mm. And so it's not like we're talking about something that is different than or separate from uh, you know, God's working when we're talking about human psychology. We're talking about something that in its you know, best form was designed by God precisely to facilitate the kind of relationship that we are able to have with God and, and with other people. The other point that I wanted to, to make here is that, you know, it's, it's very curious to me, it's very interesting to me that we seem to have this kind of Gnostic impulse as human beings that has plagued us throughout the centuries. It keeps kind of rearing its head in these various forms. We have a really hard time just arriving at kind of a balanced perspective. And I feel like maybe people who struggle with uh, the validity of the psychological, you know, neurobiological research mm. and the actions of the Holy Spirit, that that might be just another manifestation of that uh, tendency to want to reduce everything to one or the other. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so it's something that we need to kind of actively fight against. Yeah. Uh, that, that there's nothing inherently... Uh, uh, in the, the two parts are not inherently in tension with one another. Yeah. But we have this tendency to want to make them be somehow incompatible mm -hmm. with each other. Uh, and, uh, of course, that brings with it all kinds of problems. Right. That, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's almost as if we want to set the work of God and the Holy Spirit as one explanation, one possible explanation alongside of attachment filters mm -hmm. or scientific explanations as if there's a competition between mm -hmm. God and mm -hmm. you know the deliverances of modern scientific research and it actually puts God in a box and makes God a lot smaller than right. who God really is yeah uh, as kind of the creator of mm -hmm. the processes that are studied through the field of psychology absolutely and in you know it certainly is a kind of a foundational you know, theological conviction of the great tradition of the Christian church that God is wholly other. Mm -hmm. He is not a, a, a human like we are. He is spirit and, and he's just ontologically, his being is other. Mm -hmm. And so how, why would we think that he'd be in competition with mm -hmm. these mm -hmm. sort of uh, physical explanations? Yeah. I mean, one of the ways I describe it, I mean, very similar to what Liz just said is, all of the processes we learn from psychology, from attachment theory and all these various theories about how we process our emotions, how we grow, how we become aware of, um, you know, these attachment filters and emotional pain and work through those things and heal from trauma, all these things, 
they don't belong to psychology per se, right? Because they're God's processes. He created us with these processes. And so it's back to this idea that it, it really is all integrated. And they're not, as you put it so wonderfully, Court, that they're not in competition. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Um, the, another question I had was, uh, one of the things that really jumped out to me in the book is when you're writing on attachment filters is the intergenerational nature of them, that parents tend to pass these modes of attachments on to their children, who then pass them on to their children, and so on. Um, when I hear this, I, I teach ethics courses at Taylor University, uh, the ethicist in me immediately begins to think about what the implications of this are for moral responsibility. For instance, when inherited insecure attachment filters give rise to problematic behavior. And so uh, related to that, ultimately, how responsible do you think we are, if at all, for our actions that are directly informed by inherited attachment filters, implicit relational knowledge, etc.? And I know we're getting more into kind of philosophical speculation here. Um, so, but, but maybe you guys could just humor me on that front. I mean, it's a great question. It's, you know, we could throw in there uh, 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 psychological disorders that are genetic in nature, or, I mean, there's all mm -hmm. kinds of questions sure. that can yeah. be thrown into this boat. I almost want to push it back on you to hear your response a bit, because, uh, again, from kind of a semi-informed, uh, you know, theological position, I, I would argue that we are responsible for all of our sin, and yet Paul argues, for example, in the book of Romans, that we are slaves to sin, which suggests that we can't do other mm. than what we have mm -hmm. done. Yeah. And so, I mean, in a sense, it, it's a theological problem before it's a psychological one, mm. because we're responsible and yet we're yeah, slaves. We I like, I like how otherwise. you did that. That's very Christ-like. <laughs> back on me. Yeah. But maybe I'll see if Todd. Yeah. Wants to we'll first. <laughs> I have a few thoughts, and then, then we'll love to hear your I will. Thoughts. Yeah, I'll wait. Or, but yeah, but it is a great question. I think one of the ways I would think about that is I would want to make a distinction between direct and indirect responsibility. Maybe would be one way to put it. Mm -hmm. um, that if we're talking about a situation where you know, and of course I deal with this with clients, right? Where there's these painful, you know, attachment experiences or filters. Uh, that really shape a person, there, there may be times when that shapes them to feel certain ways and behave certain ways and um, that are unhealthy, right, dysfunctional. Um, maybe it's whatever, anger outbursts, uh, whatever. And they don't have the capacity at that moment to, you know, radically change that, feel a whole different set of feelings, for example. And so I would say, because of that, you know, in, in a broad sense, they've been sinned against, they've had these negative experiences mm -hmm. that have been internalized. In a very narrow sense, I would say there's less direct moral responsibility, but I would say there's always indirect mm. responsibility to move forward in the process of growth and, mm. you know, do the next right thing, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so for some clients, that can be as basic as go get help, you know, show up to therapy and do the work. It doesn't always have to be therapy, of course. It can be talking to someone, getting getting help, but working toward, in a process, it, getting to a place where you can respond in a more healthy way in terms of your emotional reactions and then how you relate to others. Mm. You know, if I could throw in just another thought here, yeah. too. Um, I mean, speaking of just kind of the goals of sanctification and, and that kind of thing, 
Um, you know, as, as a mother raising two sons in what I hope was a fairly healthy uh, mm -hmm. household, uh, and related to what we discussed earlier about the connection between suffering and flourishing, uh, it strikes me that sometimes uh, people with more healthy attachment filters might be able to cover up their need for God mm. a little bit better, and so they are in a sense disadvantaged, right? Mm. Um, yeah. So I've had to look for times in my son's life where maybe they really messed up to say, this is why you need Jesus. Mm. Right? This is, And so uh, in a sense, it's uh, an uphill battle to help them to see their need for Christ and Christ's community yeah. when forming secure attachments mm. comes more easily. So yeah. it cuts both ways, I guess. Yeah, that's, I think that's, I think it's a really valuable insight. I, uh, I have a story that I tell frequently when I, when I teach, uh, it comes from the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and he's at an epileptic colony when he's writing his ethics. And this is when the Nazis were moving to exterminate everyone they viewed as useless, which would include people with epilepsy. And he writes a letter to his grandma from there um, because he's just gone to a church service. And during this church service, people are having epileptic seizures throughout. It's disruptive. Um, but one of the things that pushes Bonhoeffer to reflect on is that in, in some important ways, uh, these people with epilepsy uh, were in a better position to understand the truth of the gospel, that they were, they were dependent, they were deeply in need um, than people who uh, had the convenience or the luxury of um, buying into the illusion that such as him, and he, he implicates himself here, such as me, that, that I'm healthy. Um, and if you conceive yourself as healthy, you don't understand that need, that vulnerability, that brokenness. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's really poignant. Well, I, I said I said I'd I'd respond here as well. I mean, I think I, I think I certainly um, uh, uh, totally agree with what you um, mentioned from Romans there and Pauline theology, Liz. That if if we take Paul seriously, it certainly seems yeah, sin is sin involves our behavior, but it's also something that that victimizes us. And so I, I think we need to construe of it in that sort of more robust way and there's not this fine line this clear-cut line between sinful actions and the way that sin has affected us that those things are intertwined and interface i think theologically we could say that it interfaces in original sin um, and uh, the sin in this world affects us and it also um, results in problematic actions but i also and i also think i would just move to the incarnation, the fact that God takes on human flesh, comes, takes on particular human flesh, and, and comes towards us in humanity as human beings, and that in the gift of spirit, he comes for, towards us as particular human beings. And in that way, um, we're talking about moral responsibility. We have to do it, at least if we're coming from a Christian perspective, understanding human beings as those who are beloved by God, who God comes towards in their particularity, and um, that that God seeks to draw towards Himself uh, in that encounter and that approach, and I think that's where I, I Todd, where I think you put quite well is indirect and direct responsibility. Um, that that seems much more appropriate uh, way of construing it than 
just saying, well, uh, whatever people do, um, if that's morally problematic, that's on them. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think uh, your discussion of, of what's going on here with attachment filters is, is so helpful in nuancing mm -hmm. conversations around moral responsibility uh, in, in Christian circles. I have one more question that I want to ask you guys. Uh, and it's just a final question um, to conclude. And it's, it's more for the people listening who are interested in this intersection and uh, want to uh, kind of pursue this conversation more. Uh, what is one book or article that you think everyone who's interested in what's going on here, integration between psychology and theology, should go read? Where should they start or, or what, what has been most important for you in thinking through this? This is probably of the questions that you've asked, the one that I struggled with the most. <laughs> because, you know, we have psychology is fortunate in having a fairly long and robust tradition of trying to bring psychology and Christianity together. Mm -hmm. And so there are so many books and uh, they, they ask different questions and they address different things. And so part of the answer is just, well, what's the person interested in? Right. Mm -hmm. um, I would say one good overall helpful book is, uh, you know, University has these kind of four views on or whatever. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. And so there's a five views on the integration of psychology mm -hmm. and uh, theology that I think is a very helpful one. Mm -hmm. uh, Todd has a co-edited chapter in, mm -hmm. in that. Mm -hmm. So that might be a good starting place. Um, if someone wanted to get kind of an overall sense of some of the places where psychology has gone uh, in kind of the history of integration, one book that's a little older now, but is still maybe a, a, a nice place to start is uh, an edited book that was put out uh, for the anniversary, was it the 50th anniversary mm -hmm. of the Christian Cups. Association for Psychological Studies? And so that's a 2007 book called Psychology and Christianity Integration. And I think it's works that shaped the movement or something like that. And okay. so a bunch of psychologists voted on the most kind of prominent articles, uh, the ones that had mm -hmm. uh, shaped their perspectives the most. And so Todd and I also have an article in that book. Uh, and then a more recent book that just came out, I believe, last year uh, by Bill Hathaway and Mark Yarhouse called The Integration of Psychology and Christianity, a Domain-Based Approach. Okay. So they've done a nice job of kind of at a high level synthesizing various strands of integration, you know, more clinically applied one, mm -hmm. more theoretical, more. So that's, a, I think, a really nice way of having a framework for understanding the very broad field. Mm -hmm of the psychology mm -hmm. of uh, psychology and Christianity integration mm -hmm. movement. Yeah, and there's probably two ways of thinking about this question. There's sort of models of integration or how do you, how do, you do integration, yeah. what is integration, mm -hmm. right? And so some of those books Liz mentioned talk about that, the Five Views book, um, and the view that John Coe and I wrote, which is called Transformational Psychology, grew out of a book we wrote before that called Psychology in the Spirit. So that's kind of our view about how do you do integration? What does this look like? And, you know, the, it's consistent with this relational spirituality view and that we argue that a fundamental aspect of doing integration is who you are becoming as a person, right? Your own mm -hmm. sort of personal level of integration shapes and informs the theoretical integration and that these are intertwined. Mm -hmm. um, so, but, and there's, so there's these other views, there's a lot of overlap there um, in a few more recent books like the ones Liz mentioned another one in this area of kind of 
doing integration. Steve Sandage has done a lot of great work um, on integration and um, with this a very similar relational spirituality perspective. So he's got a book, Relational Integration of Psychology and Theology. Okay. It's fairly recent. Um, and also a book focused on bringing that perspective into the therapy realm. Um, Steve and some of his colleagues uh, have a book called Relational Spirituality in Psychotherapy. So that's, uh, I think, a great book for looking at that in the, in the therapy realm. Mm. I'm sure there's others. So many books. Yeah, I'm sure there, there's a lot, but that's, that's great. That's a great place to start. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time and hosting me out here at Rosemead. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. It's great to have you out. Very fun.